Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The word of the Lord. Well, before we, we start diving into that powerful psalm, uh, just one, one little family uh, word here. You know, one of the great gifts that God has given us this past year is uh, that our families are expanding and uh, we're having a lot more kids upstairs. And uh, that means that our, the number of folks that serve them by praying and loving and teaching them needs to expand as well. And one of the things that often happens in churches is the people that care for the children on Sundays are the, the moms who are with them all week. But that's not really fair to our young moms. Uh, a great way that we can serve them is by the rest of our body coming along and, and serving and letting them rest and worship on Sunday nights. So we're getting ready to start a new year. Melanie's doing a tremendous job of planning and preparation uh, we need uh, about six more teachers who are willing to commit once a month to teach and love and pray for our children. Melanie prepares a lesson plan, but, but you do need to be very present and prayerful as you go about presenting it. So if you could talk to Melanie after the service, if you could commit to uh, one Sunday a month for 12 months, we would really, really appreciate it. You know, and I, I just was thinking uh, earlier tonight, we had a wonderful time with our kids home for vacation and just Ashton was talking about some of her experience in church and leading worship up at a little church near her campus, and, and just, just I was just rejoicing at this rich faith that she has, and and, I, and then I just started to remember uh, how how many people have poured into her over the years, even through this church. Patrick was very instrumental in pouring into her faith, and and Joe and. Uh, look, on this side of it, I'm so thankful for the men and women that poured into my children. And so I, I pray that some of you would uh, do that as well. Well, I don't know about you. I love Advent, but for many years I always felt like I failed at Advent because uh, being a goal-oriented person, uh, when I first began to understand the church year and receive it as a gift and understand the beauty of walking with Christ through the liturgical calendar and all those wonderful things we talk about, I would decide that, that, that this Advent I was going to clear my calendar and I was going to get a special Advent book and I was going to create special Advent times with my family, my wife, with God, and it was going to be the richest spiritual time of the year. And normally by about December 12th, uh, all my plans would have uh, fallen apart. Because, as you know, it's, it's very, very difficult uh, to, to keep Advent in a retreat kind of way at the end of the year. In our culture, there's a lot of demands that just come up at the end of the year, and that's just the way it is. So what I shifted to the past couple of years is to 
to try to keep Advent in my heart. And, and I often think about the monastery where I try to attend during Lent. And it's this wonderful, simple little chapel tucked away in the back of a, of a, of a desert valley in, in, in New Mexico. And I know right now, tonight, I could see it in my mind's eye. Uh, there, there's a fire burning. There's candles. Uh, they're ending the day in prayer. And, and I try to revisit that chapel in my heart. And, and one of the ways that, that I try to do that is through the scriptures and the prayers of Advent. And what I hope you can do during this Lent, or have this Advent, is, is, is to create that kind of a space in your heart. You're not going to be able to live there. But where you can go and find quiet and peace and renew your relationship with, with Christ. That's the intent of, of Advent. Now, one of the ways that the church does this is by reflecting on certain Advent texts. And uh, for 2,000 years, the church has essentially said, these are a handful of texts that prepare us to receive the coming of Christ. And uh, we'll be preaching from several of them, one each week leading up to Christmas. We'll preach on one on Christmas Eve. And then if, if you're interested and desirous if this would help you, uh, tonight in the chapel, in Mary Tarwater Chapel at 7, we're going to have an Advent Compline service that I'll be leading. It's built on the Book of Common Prayer. And essentially, we'll just be praying through a number of uh, scriptures that relate to Advent. It's a wonderful, quiet way to, to end a Sunday uh, during Advent. Now, each week of Advent has a special theme. And the theme of the first week, as Jesse has pointed out, is, is waiting. Christians are a waiting people. We, we live in the gap between the already and the not yet. We know that Christ has come, but will yet come again. We know the kingdom is present, but not yet fully here. We know that Satan is defeated, but not yet fully uh, dead. And so we wait. And waiting isn't easy. And maybe one of the ways you could begin this Advent season is thinking tonight, maybe you'll have a little time to think about it later this week when you go to wherever your sanctuary place is, and just, just ask yourself, what, what are you waiting for? What, what is it that, that, that God has put on your heart? What is the, the desire of your heart that you're waiting for tonight? Are you waiting for love? Are you waiting for justice? Are you waiting for peace? Are you waiting for health? Are you waiting for an answer? Are you waiting for freedom from a habitual sin? Are you waiting for a sense of meaning and purpose in your life? Are you waiting for someone to die? What are you waiting for tonight? We all have longings. We all have things we desire, we hope for, we are looking to. Some would say that, that the heart's unfulfilled longing is, is a cruel kind of cosmic joke that every human being longs and yearns and wants and hopes, but there is 
no one who will fulfill it. Samuel Beckett, the playwright, thought it was a joke. In his play, Waiting on Godot, two men wait for a godlike figure who never comes. And that's his view of the world, is that we have these longings, we have these, these passions, these yearnings, but there's no one there who ever answers them. Advent reminds us that we believe somebody is coming, that someone has come, that will come, that somebody is Jesus, and that our deepest longing point to a deeper reality, the reality of the kingdom that's here in part, but will come in full. But waiting isn't easy. So how do you wait on God when he seems slow to fulfill his promises? Well, Psalm 80 provides us with an example, and the first seven verses kind of explore that theme. The Greek translation has a caption on it that says, A Psalm Concerning the Assyrian. Now, what was that about? Well, this psalm was written sometime after the ten tribes of the northern kingdom had been swept away by the Assyrian armies, never to be heard from again. It was a genocide that took place in 734 to 722 B.C., and I don't have a map tonight, but if you have ever studied this and we've looked at this before, the ten tribes were all in most of the north of Israel that just left tiny little Judah down in the south. And, and Judah was then exposed and alone in one of the most ancient corridors, dangerous corridors of the ancient world. And what made this particularly difficult is, is Judah's belief in God, because God had promised to bless the world through Israel in the promised land. And they look over their border and, and they can see the rubble and the smoke and the armies destroying all their neighbors to the north. It was an apocalypse. It was a genocide. And so one of the survivors, perhaps, of uh, that northern battle uh, has written a the Psalm 80. And it's a psalm about waiting on God to fulfill his promises. The psalmist begins, and, and this was probably prayed as a community in the in the temple in Jerusalem. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. So he starts, he's, he's struggling, he's afraid, he writes this, he's leading the people of God in praise, and, and that's what good hymns are, their prayers, their praise. And he, he begins by reminding himself of the character of God, and that's a good thing to do when you're waiting, when God seems distant or absent, or the people that you're around wonder if he exists at at all. And he reminds himself that God is the good shepherd of Israel, that he is faithful to lead his people like a flock. I was in uh, some hills in Romania once, and an old shepherd uh, came by this rugged terrain with about 30 sheep. And, and as he walked, each of the sheep had a, a bell on their neck, and, and uh, he would call to them. And a lot of times the sheep would go behind a bush or a thicket or a hill and lose sight of the shepherd. But the shepherd always knew where the sheep were because the shepherd could always hear the bell. And that's important to remember tonight because I suspect some of you feel like the shepherd's not leading very well. Perhaps the, the holidays uh, were a period of confusion for you. Perhaps there was a conversation or uh, a, 
an encounter. Uh, perhaps you learned something about your family or yourself. Perhaps uh, some expectations about the future were rearranged. And you're wondering, where is the shepherd? It doesn't feel like he's leading me anywhere. Well, it's good in those times to remember that he has led you in the past and he's leading you now even if you can't sense it at all. And then he prays, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. And that's a, a wonderful classic Old Testament prayer. The cherubim were these angels who would guard God's glory and they were carved into the top of the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence would, would, would rest and reign on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the cherubim. And, and, and in great times in Israel's history, with the Ark in the middle of the, of the nation, God's presence would, would shine forth and they would sense His power and their enemies would scatter and Israel would be saved. It, and so what the psalmist is saying here is, is that this time in, in, in his life, in, in the corporate life of Israel, there's not been much of that. That they're not knowing much of the felt presence of God. He seems very distant to them, very absent. And, and he's saying, God, would you come back? Those are hard times to wait, aren't they? Waiting is about trusting. Waiting is about love. Waiting is about believing that God will keep his promises. And, and, and rightly or wrongly, when we don't experience much of God's presence or, or, or love, it's hard to wait. And that may be where, where you are tonight. It may have been a long time since you've connected with God in any tangible way, either out in the woods or in a worship service or in a scripture or in a time of conversation. Looking back, it may have been a year or so since you've known God that way, and that's making it hard to wait. It's like waiting on someone who's just gone away. Those are difficult times, and that's why waiting requires much faith. Someone said, and I don't know who, the hunger for God sustains us more than the experience of God. Perhaps that's one of the keys to waiting. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, I love the presence of God. I love those times when I feel close to God, when I feel near to God. They sustain me. I think they're the ones that kind of energize me and give me hope because I've touched Him and tasted Him and, and I feel Him and so I can go out in the world and live for Him. But, but what that author was saying was actually... That's not what sustains you. Actually, what sustains you is not just the presence of God, but the hunger for the presence of God. And perhaps that's why God withdraws His presence from us. And it'd be interesting to talk about this in a small group or something. Uh, I think I felt God's presence a lot more when I was younger. And, and I've wondered about that. I've wondered if I've done something wrong, if there's some hidden sin in my life. I, I don't know if other saints uh, have experienced the same thing. 
now I have a, a kind of a settled trust, a settled knowing in God and who he is. I don't, I don't experience him the way I did in my 30s. I don't know what to make of that. But I do know that the hunger of God sustains me more than the presence of God. Now the next line of the psalm is, Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your might, come and save us, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Those tribes, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, were three northern tribes. Ephraim was the most powerful. Uh, it was a tribe that dominated the center of the promised land. And so, what in the ancient world, this would be similar to, to talking about the, the Northeast Corridor, the Silicon Valley. He's talking about the most powerful regions in his world that have now been devastated and gone. And trembling, he, he looks to the fallen northern kingdom and he cries out to God for salvation and as I read this psalm, I worked in it this week, I kept thinking about the Hunger Games. Um, our family went to, to see that uh, one night over vacation. And in, in, in a lot of ways, uh, we are the districts. Uh, the, the Bible talks about, uh, Jesus even calls Satan the prince of this earth, that there is a, a malevolent force that, in between the comings, does reign falsely and cruelly over the world, and we sort of live in the rubble of what he has left behind. And, 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 I, and I wonder, when I, when I watch these films and how much power they have and how the culture connects with them, and, 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 and it's got to be more than just wanting an adventure all these post-apocalyptic dystopian films that are out now where the whole world is crushed in a, either a comic book hero or a Katniss Everdeen or somebody pops up to save the world, that's either a cruel joke or it's an archetype of the heart's deepest longing that somebody save us. Well, the, the hope... Uh, of Israel, the hope of the Christian is that somebody is, has, and will, but it looks differently than it looks like in the, the Hunger Games. There's no perpetually refilling uh, bag of arrows. That's what I always love about the movie. She never runs out of arrows. You know, they just keep appearing. That's not part of the biblical story. And actually, this is what puzzled me as I thought about this week. This is a failed prayer. In one sense. Because you know your biblical history. So the guy, this community sitting there in Jerusalem. They're looking at the north in rubble. And they're saying, please God, save us, restore us. What they meant was politically, militarily protect us, keep us together. And you know what happens? There was a President Snow who was raised up in the north. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And he comes down, destroys them, and takes them all into captivity. So there is a sense in which Psalm 80 didn't work. At least from the perspective of the 6th century. And so one of the things that you have to ask is, well, why do they put it in the book? Why did the people of God say, we, we think this one's inspired? 
We hear God in this one. Keep praying this one. Why couldn't they have found a better one that worked? Well, maybe because the Christian hope is about waiting on a salvation that comes long after we're gone. Maybe the, the hope that, that he's referring to here, maybe the salvation that we're crying out for in Advent is only partially now, but only completely later. Maybe the revolution that we all long for, maybe it doesn't really happen until he comes back. Now, I do believe God restores. I believe He heals. I believe He restores in, in, in provisional ways, in partial ways, in incomplete ways. But what I think you see in the psalm, what I think the church continues to pray a psalm like this, is because it's pointing us to a salvation that is eternal and everlasting and complete that happens later. And we only can look to it now provisionally. Now, why does that matter? I think, I think this is why it matters. If you expect full restoration, full healing, full salvation, now, in this world, you will forever be disappointed. You will forever be cynical. You will forever be angry and demanding, and your fists will be clenched. And you'll find somewhere to point it. You'll point it at some person, some leader, some something to point it at. I think when we live in Psalm 80 for a while, we, we step back and we still care about restoration. And we, we still care about healing. And we still care about brokenness. And we still work for evangelism and social justice and all those things. But we know that it's always only provisional. And that the greater salvation only comes when Christ returns. And that, that's why we're not so bent out of shape when it doesn't all go our way. And we don't get what we think we want. And we lose a few battles on the way. I think that's the deeper longing and the deeper hope. Now, in verses 4 to 6, the, the psalmist really shifts gears. And he becomes angry. And, and he says, Oh, Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? He's frustrated. And, and, and who knows all that's going on there? Part of it may be an acknowledgement of his own sin. You know, if you read 2 Kings, you figure out there was a lot of terrible stuff going on in Israel during this period. Maybe in a, in, in a way, he's saying, what have we done, Lord, to, to keep you from blessing us? And that's not a bad prayer. That's a, that's a legitimate prayer. There are reasons why God doesn't bless his people. We should seek those out and explore those. That's understandable. But he doesn't go into that very far. He just kind of wants God to know how frustrated he is. And then he takes it farther. He says, you have fed them with the bread of tears. You've given them tears to drink in full measure. Now the gloves are all the way off. It's like somebody pulled a ripcord. And now he's saying, God, you did this. You caused it. You made it happen. You killed them. You're the one. 
you make us an object of contention of our neighbors and our enemies laugh among ourselves. God, you withdrew from us. You plunged us into misery. You've made us shameful. You broke my heart. And then after this outburst of disappointment with God, this outburst of lament, the psalmist returns to his original request. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. I think there's a lesson in here about waiting. That waiting is hard. Waiting will break your heart. Waiting will cause you to doubt. Waiting will make you disappointed and angry with God. And one of the ways that you process waiting is to talk to God about how hard it is to wait. And sometimes that might even mean telling God how mad you are at Him, how disappointed you are with Him, how frustrated you are. Because what happens in the psalm is that that moves, that lament moves back to trust. And last Lent, we did this series on lament, and you saw this again and again and again, how, how the, God's people lament, they grieve, they, they become angry with God, they express their disappointment as they move towards trust. And that's where the psalm will eventually end. And I wonder if one of the reasons we, we don't get to that trust, we don't get to the waiting, we don't get to the love, we don't get to the, the, the confidence, is we don't go through the lament. It, it's not permissible in our, in our small groups, it's not permissible to write songs about it, it's not permissible to preach about it, it's not permissible to tweet about it, to, to talk about just how doggone frustrated I am with God tonight. You just don't say that. But the Psalms model for us lament as a way to move towards hope. So maybe as you, as you begin to think about what Advent is going to, to mean for you, you might, you might keep this, this odd rhythm in mind. Um, and and I, I thought I'd try to summarize it and just kind of, I think, I'm trying to capture the, the tenor of the prayer. And the, I, I think it goes something like this. God, you are such a good shepherd. I trust you. You've led me in the past. You won't fail me in the future. You are my king. Please guide me and bless me with your presence. Save me. Restore me. I plead with you, O King. That we may be saved. So maybe there needs to be an explosion this Advent. Maybe there needs to be a lament as you move towards trust. Let's pray.